Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work. A desire for always learning and improving and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hi, and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host, Jim Nettles, and this week we're doing kind of a special show. Uh, I do a lot of conventions, events for those guys that know me, follow all the things that we do, and there's a lot of power and energy I've found over the years off of different events I work with, a lot of the nonprofits I do work with, even just you know events and places I go. You get to meet people build communities, you know, even if it's online where you've never met the people. And there's a great value that I found in life in terms of building relationships and building community. And we had um, a couple of folks on a show a couple weeks ago for a new releases show that I really got fascinated in the idea. And I love what we're doing and studying here. And this is about the power of fandom. And Usually on the show, we're talking about business and we're talking about the creative side and we're talking about making money and all of that. But the power of any business, the power of creativity is really what good can we do for our people in our community? And that is the story that we're bringing this week. So let me introduce our authors and talk a bit here about it. So Tanya, I'll let you go first. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. I'm Tanya Cook. I use she, they pronouns. Uh, I am a sociology professor in my daytime, um, and my nighttime is less exciting. I don't know. My nighttime is uh, researching fandom and fan communities and looking at how fans use their their love of fandom and media products to do good in the world. Uh, so that's sort of my, my intro, I guess. Kayla? I would argue that your nighttime job is just as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, I'm Kayla Joseph. I use they and she pronouns and I am a licensed clinical psychologist by day and mostly actually work in hospital administration and program management, DEI work and supervise, uh, not so much involved in clinical work myself anymore. And by night and also weekend and whenever I can find the time, uh, similar to Tanya research, fan activism and, and all the good that fans do. Yeah. So the first question I've got is going to be kind of an obvious one. How did you guys meet? How did you connect up before you even decided to start working on this project? So we, this is a long answer and, and I will try to be succinct because it, it's a, it's a good long story. So actually I started working on this project before I met Kayla, but just very initial stages. So I'm a, as I said, I'm a sociology professor. I teach at a community college here in the Denver area. So I'm mostly a teaching professor, but being a big nerd, I also love research and uh, got really fascinated in fan communities and what they were doing around charity work when I fell into the supernatural fandom around 2015. And a friend of mine asked me for um, some feedback on a proposal they were giving for uh, the Popular Culture Association meeting around Supernatural. And I was looking at Supernatural and looking at what fans were doing. And I thought, you know, this really looks like this looks like a social movement, like from my understanding of that and my background and training on 
how uh, communities coalesce into collective action and then build, become much larger to do um, social cultural change in the world. So I ended up submitting my own proposal. And at that meeting, I was very new to this project. And this is kind of important because um, if any of your any of your listeners are um, academics or writers, they'll kind of get where I'm coming from here. Um, I was very new in this project. And then someone tweeted at the actor Misha Collins from Supernatural about this and <laughs> said, you know, there's a, there's a, a presenter here who's talking about Gish, your scavenger hunt as collective effervescence. And these are very like social theory terms, et cetera, and blah, blah. And so he chose to go look it up and share my entire abstract which for an academic is a little bit like somebody, you know, um, I don't know, opening your sh your bathroom door while you're in the shower, maybe something like that. <laughs> it feels a little like you're being uh, you're being exposed or it's unexpected, right? Um, and shared it on his social media and did that to troll uh, Jared Padalecki, his co-star. And so this is this was wild for me because I went into this presentation. I was very nervous. I come out and then my social media has just exploded. Right. Um, and I thought someone was pranking me. Oh yeah. haha, ha, Misha Collins shared your thing. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't, it was actually him, which was, which was wild to have that spotlight at that point in the process. But the good news of that, other than the panic attack that it definitely gave me, um, was that Kayla felt in like inspired, um, to find me and reach out to me. And, and they were not the only person, but they were, the person that I felt was the best match for my skill set in terms of bringing this book uh, into being, and then from there, it was a it was a further journey of collaboration. But we we talked um, on the phone and by email for months and and years even before we met in person. And then we met in person maybe five or six years ago, I think. And then things just kind of went. We've we've kind of continued to to um, hitch our wagon together. I don't know. I'm mixing a lot of metaphors, but you get it. <laughs> so that's, that's how that came into being. And I, I, this is really the best, the best part of that, uh, having the light shined on you in a way that felt a little stressful. Yeah. Well, it really was perfect timing because I had just started reading about academic fandom and realizing that this was something that I could do with my site career and was looking for opportunities to do more of this when that tweet went out and went, this is exactly what I want to be doing. This maps on so perfectly. So um, I, I'm sorry that you had to go through the panic attacks, but glad that it brought us together. For sure. Yeah. It's like, I guess, thank you, Misha. And also it's damn it, Misha is a lot of gishers are familiar with that thing, but like, no, it was good. It was all good. Well, worth it. Hashtag worth it. <laughs> so as you might've figured out by now, uh, we a are talking about the supernatural TV show uh, and B and the grand fandom that is around that and B that we're talking about a project related to fandom and all the things that can come out of it. So why don't you guys talk a little bit more just about the book and the project itself. And let's actually talk about some of the stories from it that came out of it. Um, not sure who wants to start with that one. I'm going to let Kayla go because I talked a lot already. <laughs> so I'm going to actually flip it back to you because I think you have a much more succinct summary. And then I'm happy to go into some of the stories. 
Okay, I will try. Thank you. All right. Wow, this is like a teacher, you know, okay, doctor, 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 doctor. It's like one of those moments, but that's okay. We can we can roll with that. So our book is Fandom Acts of Kindness. And the point of the book is to really accomplish two things. One is it's to honor the fans and the wonderful, amazing work that they have done um, with their love of fandom to make the world a better place. They really are our heroes and we cannot say enough good things about them. And I think in a time that where the night is dark and full of terrors, um, if you will, that looking at the positive ways fandom has changed the world for good is just really nourishing for us as humans. And also we wanted to give that back um, after looking at all of these stories. And then the second goal would be to allow readers or users to use this book as a pathway into activism or into charity work and, and working to make their communities better. Cause we started to looking at fandom and looking at the charity aspects we started to present our research throughout this process. And the question we got asked a lot at conventions was, I like your ideas. They're all really fun, but how do I do it? How do I actually accomplish these goals? Where do I sign up? Give me the manual for being a fan activist. And that's what we hope we have tried to do with this book. And the stories really ranged from things that, anyone could do to starting whole organizations. And so I think one of the things that's really special about this book is it gives lots of different examples of how to get involved from, you know, the the wildest ideas that you can come up with to the things that you can do without even leaving your bed. So we heard of folks who had started organizations. Um, one of those organizations, Parasol Patrol, uh, which shields kids at events where there is anti-LGBTQ plus protesters, is now getting national attention and is a really, really incredible organization that we heard about. We also heard about somebody who had donated an organ to another fan, which is pretty special. I don't know of a lot of communities where people donate organs to strangers. And then we also heard of, you know, people who were doing activism by hashtagging things, by doing things on social media that we all do every day, or by getting people to vote, by participating in, and we talked a little bit earlier about um, Gishwa's, the uh, big scavenger hunt that Random Acts and Misha Collins used to put on. And that was also where a lot of folks were able to find spaces to do activism. And so even just having this like dedicated time that you get together with other fans and say, okay, for this week, I'm going to do this. So it's not necessarily something that folks have to participate in 24 seven. And for those who do participate in it a lot, we also have a lot of things in the book about mental health and how to take care of yourself while you're engaging in activism. Yeah, and I wanted to just add to that quickly that although we met through the Supernatural fandom and that's a that's a primary fandom for both of us, the book has a lot of examples of activism in multiple fandoms and some of the examples reference fictional characters, right? Like um as as a way to connect because what what we love about fandom is the stories and the way that they can help us understand our place in the world better and the way they inspire us. So we took those um as a way to connect with folks on these topics that might 
might not otherwise make sense or might be harder to integrate. So there's a lot of different examples, but those are those are a few of the the ones that we we found really amazing. Um, everything. So when we say fan activism, we mean everything from trying to get more seasons of your favorite show to happen, right? To using your fandom to create an organization like Parasol Patrol or to fight for um, immigrant rights or actually going out and protesting and getting folks to vote. All of that for us falls under the umbrella, if you will, of uh, fan activism. We we don't, we are not dismissive as, as some... Um, folks are of sort of hashtag activism because that may be what's available to folks. You know, if you're, especially during the pandemic or if you're an immunocompromised person, maybe you can't leave your house to go join a, a street protest. Maybe the best way for you to change the world is to sit at your computer and file a lot of petitions or get um, some kind of, um, you know, boycott going or something like that or an awareness campaign. So looking at, all the different fandoms you guys looked at, um, is there a consistent theme where you find people that take that fandom and roll it into trying to do a cause, trying to go for good work, you know, whatever the case is, is, is are there some consistent themes you saw there? I think part of that goes back to what Tanya was saying about the power of story. And a lot of the stories that people fall in love with and build fandoms around have something about heroism and giving back in some way. And I know for Supernatural fandom in particular, it's this idea of saving people hunting things. That's as one of my primary fandoms, the easiest example to go to. But a lot of fandoms have that kind of theme. So we're seeing a lot with the Our Flag Means Death fandom right now and this idea of you know, talking it through as a crew has also been a community building message. And so a lot of the fan activism that we saw when people were talking about their inspiration, it was going back to those stories of, well, my favorite character does this, and that really inspired me to also do this. I think another commonality I would I would add, and I'm so glad you asked this, because it really is it it is and it isn't about the story, right? Or the particular media product. It's 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 the way that it speaks to folks and then those folks coming together and interacting around it, creating fan works, that that eventually sort of burgeons into or blossoms into this this sort of focus of people where they where they want to do good in the world, they want to use that energy toward good. Um, another commonality, and I'll say more about that in a second, but another commonality we've noticed is the theme of found family um, or created family. So if you look at some of our beloved, um, you know, media products, one of the themes again that's that's really um, I would say a common denominator is a group of unlikely people who come together and come to think of each other as family or as a as a cohort. So I'm thinking everything from I'm a big Expanse nerd, right, from the Expanse to Star Trek to um, maybe the Rebel Alliance and Star Wars or certain communities there. Even I was been watching the Mandalorian. So looking at their culture and how they're kind of bringing in foundlings. And I mean, that is the definition of found family, right? Um, and so this, this aspect of you and this small group against the, the evils of the world and like transcending to do good outside of your immediate context, while also simultaneously building a really close primary group of folks for yourself seems to be one of the common themes um, in these products. And then, like I said, 
The other part is that creativity that it sparks in fans where they want to write fic, they want to write make art, they want to engage or talk more about these stories with one another and um, discuss or like deep dive into the, um, you know, if if I'm actually going to make the 48, 40 orange uh, cake from Our Flag Means Death, where's the recipe for that? Let's let's take a picture of it. Let's decorate it beautifully, right? And then have people feed, give feedback on that. That forms community, like working together towards some shared goal. And it's only natural, I think, from, from our perspectives as social scientists, that that would transition into trying to use that energy toward good in the world. So when you look at this, and this has always been one of those things that, that I've always kind of studied at, at different conventions, different events, different things like this, kind of across the board is when you watch how communities form and shared interests and whatnot as to how clicks form and, and really those found families within whether it's a fandom or a given, you know, sort of community or event form. Did you see anything common into how that actually happens and how groups of people come together and those common interests sort of settle each other? And were there certain traits there in the kinds of people that came together that then found interest in actually pursuing doing work. Mm. So how I'm hearing the question is what, what is common about people who are attracted to this kind of activism or, or that, that how does that speak to people? Are there common de demographics? And I can speak to that with a caveat because as a social scientist, I want to be really precise and I don't have the numbers to be, to speak to it as uh, scientifically as I'd like to, but I will come back to that. And I think the other question is what, where do we see, how do we see the community coalescing? And yeah, we do talk about that. I love it because we don't usually get to nerd out on the sociology part of it. And I hope you're ready because it's, it's about to get social theory time. Um, <laughs> no, it's uh, when you have a group of people who come together to celebrate something, it, it goes back. And I, I want to be clear. I am not suggesting Fandom is a religion for folks in the sense that they worship it or believe in it. Okay, I'm using this in a sociological sense, so I just want to be clear before I say I, this. I, next. I, yeah, I, I am. I, I am a member of the Church of Jedi. So okay, right on. So but maybe it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and honestly, I think that it's so funny. I just saw an ad the other day for some um, diversity and equity work, and they were using Jedi as an acronym for a specific kind of social justice training. So talk about taking the fandom metaphor out of the fandom into the real world in a way that's really fat. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation, but um, yeah, so maybe it is for folks, but I just wanted to be clear. I'm not trying to proselytize if I said that right, it's late, <laughs> but essentially we see some commonalities with how religion forms. It goes back to some early social theory that looks at separation between your kind of everyday experience and then the heightened emotional intensity of say a convention. So I'm really glad you mentioned conventions because that's extremely important for why and how we're seeing this happen. So you, you know, maybe you discover this um, star Wars product and then you decide to go to a convention and you see all the fans there together cosplaying and dressed up and you feel this heightened emotional experience and that's collective effervescence. That is why we go to these live events because that gives us kind of a rush. 
from there, you start to build community around, well, how do we want to celebrate this? How do we engage in this? And people come together and start to create um, small groupings within that. And then we see as social scientists that the next step is often a call to action to try to embody in the world the values that you see, love, and appreciate in that product. Oh, and then the demographics. Um, <laughs> so we... Um, we did speak to dozens of fans. We've gone to many, many events. Most of the folks that we see, um, but we don't have thousands and thousands of, of numbers here. So I don't have the statistical power to say things really scientifically that I would love. But a lot of the most active fans we see are um, folks who are, are women and non-binary identities, folks who are LGBTQ identities, and and slightly older, maybe something like late 20s to maybe 50s, um, who seem to be the most active in, in this work. Well, part of the reason I was curious about this is because, again, you see both in online communities as well as in live in-person events, you know, you kind of get to watch how, how groups form and what people get drawn into helping to make the events themselves happen or run them and kind of the personalities that do that and the people that stand towards the front to drive to drive and to make things happen versus the people in the back that really make all the work happen and make other people look good um watching all of this i think it's interesting to know and understand because number one if you're interested in kind of you have a movement you want to or something you want to support, a cause, whatever you want to drive, understanding the kind of people that can create a healthy environment to push something forward. Because one of the things that I've seen both are very healthy, very productive groups that were able to accomplish great things, as well as groups that were not as healthy that ultimately became about the personalities more so than whatever they were trying to accomplish with the process. And I didn't know if you observed any of that in part of the study and as a part of the book. Because again, I know that you're looking for really pushing the success stories. We want to see those things that make us feel good. But I also think it's important to note what are the things that you need to consider if you're trying to create a movement, you're mm -hmm. trying to create that kind of a group. Good well, question. we definitely did see that, um, that both sides of that. So one of the things that we talk a little bit about in the book is shipping and ways in which shipping culture can be used as activism to create more representation in the things that we love. There are also times that shipping culture can turn into shipping wars in which people are being incredibly mean-spirited towards one another. And one of the chapters in the book actually talks about how do we intervene when we see toxic things like that happening in fandom. We call it the dark side of fandom. And we use a lot of stuff that comes out of interpersonal effectiveness skills that we utilize in psychotherapy about how do you regulate your emotions in the moment and say what you actually want to say that is consistent with your values that is going to push something forward as opposed to just screaming into the void at one another. We also have a chapter where we talk about leadership specifically and about how do we engage in leadership in a way that is more collectivist and not just pushing one person forward to look good. And I think to 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 add to that, I, I appreciate all of that too so much. And that was why Kayla was such an asset because they have that 
that background and, and those skill sets that I have had some experience with, but certainly not as much. So they're, they're the, the Jedi master in, in that way and props to them. Uh, and then sustainability of activism is a really important point. And we, we hope that we're addressing that in the book by looking at self-care and addressing like what, listen, if you want to, to be an activist in any sense of the word, it, you know, whether that's a small thing or a large thing, it is going to become overwhelming. And at some level, it's going to feel like it's just running into a wall, right? And so I think the way to overcome that is to kind of check in with yourself, be doing the self-care, be understanding what your values are. And then um, Kayla has a great example from Avengers, right? Where no, not, nobody's doing any of this, any of this stuff all on their own, right? You need a team. You don't save New York with one guy. I mean, I know Iron Man's great, but even he cannot save New York by himself, right? Um, you need a whole group of people. And sometimes in groups, you are Iron Man and sometimes you're Hawkeye. You know, you got a thing of arrows and you're doing your best and they run out. And I don't know what happens that he, although he seems to have a lot of arrows, but okay. Um, so yeah, the point is you, you need part of, part of leveling up your activism and making it sustainable is knowing who you are as a person, knowing what your skills are, what your limits are, knowing how to care for yourself, where your values are, and then connecting with other people and building those groups, which then can build coalitions. Cause really we're looking at the power of networking here. Um, to accomplish broader social change. And we have seen, I, I don't know that I would say anything is a failure if it, if it works to get people engaged, but I've certainly seen things that are more or less effective, right, in terms of um, how, how this works. And the more longer-term sustained things have really built um, support networks and then they've they've looked at specific niches of what they can do rather than try to do a lot of things. Like they'll focus on one particular campaign for a while um, and then they'll move on to another campaign, for example, like looking at, all right, let's look at getting, um, you know, fundraising for this particular food bank. And then when that happens, now let's look at um, this other, you know, issue of uh, mental health care and and funding a hotline for uh, mental health resource and fandom or something like that. And then going from there, and there's already a lot of great organizations that are out there. Sometimes it's just about connecting to them and then working on developing systems to, uh, to um, kind of address against volunteer burnout, because that is a big thing. We ask a lot of volunteers and they do burn out. Well, and something else I think that makes fan activism sustainable in a way that other activism might not be is that part of what even just makes fandom special is that it's fun. And so a lot of what we talk about in the book is this should be fun. Yes, it is going to be trying at times. Yes, it is going to be exhausting at times. Yes, it is going to be emotional at times. And some of that emotion should include some fun. And so, you know, when I get asked just personally, even what sustains me in activism, it's because I gamify things. I don't take things as personally as I could because sometimes I am playing it in my head as a video game or a tabletop role play game. And that makes it a lot more sustainable because I can take things a lot less personally if it's a game. And I know, obviously, that it's not. I know that it's like real things that are very serious, but that's what makes it sustainable. 
Well, yeah, it and should I think, be fun. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think that's part of the, it, if you create something and you take something that's fun and you make it nothing but work, if you take the joy out of the fandom, you're also taking the joy out of the, the cause and the activism, right? You're taking the joy out of the work. And even though there's real hard work involved and investment and all the rest of that and a lot of different causes, if you take the fun out of the work, you also take the fun out of the fandom. And that's one of those things that to me often I see create some of the the angst and even toxicity within something that was very positive to make it fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, are there tools? Are there things that you guys suggest? So in other words, I'm running a group, running an organization um, or building one, and I'm just starting to sense things are not, not as healthy as they should be. What are some kind of things I can do to help right that ship? Yeah. So one of the things that we talk about is a modification to a tool that is used in a lot of management and systems improvement. And the tool that it's based on is this tool that looks at basically the power of your your people who are involved in making decisions and their interest in your project. And it's a really simple tool you basically, you know, people who have more power and more interest are going to be more helpful to you. And so you do certain tasks with them. People who have a lot of power, but no interest, you're going to do different things with them. We took that and turned it into the alignment chart that is used in a lot of role play games and talked about, well, how do we take this and again, make this a little more fun, gamify it a little bit in the way that we would with a with a role play game. And think about where our different stakeholders would fall on the alignment chart. And we don't, we're we're very clear that we don't actually think anybody is evil in our alignment. Evil just means they don't want to do what you're asking them to do. And so you have to work with them in a different way. And that that's one of the tools that we talk about, as well as some of those um, tools around interpersonal effectiveness that we mentioned earlier. Just to just to jump onto that with um I think this is works for D&D. I'm going to be real that I've only played a bit of D&D, but I love it. I'm just a busy, busy person. But even in D&D campaigns, aren't there times in the game where your party has to rest? Like, aren't there set aside like, okay, the party's going to rest for 10 hours or something. And I just think, isn't that amazing that a game, a board game builds in rest time? What a What a message. Like that... That should be normalized. So I think if I were running an organization or a team where I saw people start to burn out or start to turn on each other or get kind of, um, you know, feisty with one another or a little snippy or something, I think I would hit a pause button and I would really intentionally check in with folks and I would say, what's what's going on? Like, what's the thing that's working for you? What's not working for you? What can we do to fix this and and solicit opinions and just really pause and be intentional with that? I think a lot of a lot of burnout and human interaction issues can be solved by really good listening, really good listening, and then letting people have a break to meet their needs. So maybe someone needs to step down from a role for a while, or maybe they need to shift into a different role for a while. Um, there are times in my life where I've had to say, I've loved doing this. I can't do it anymore. It's not sustainable for me at this time. I've got to put my energies over here for a minute. And I think that that's 
we need to build more of that into our organizational and work life. So this idea of balance, I, I know I'm sounding really cheesy, but um, if we can build rest and balance into D&D fake reality <laughs> board games, we can build it into life. Like it's, um, we all need personal days. We all need time. And often your folks you are working with have ideas for how to solve problems. You just don't know about them or you haven't figured out how to ask in a way that gets the the solutions. So the solutions are there. I think you just have to figure out how to get that information out of folks and then restructure, maybe take a break. You know, we're going to hit pause on doing a lot of charity events for six months. And then we're going to come back and we're going to be, we're going to do a form and like see what folks want to work on and we're going to rebuild it, right? It's okay to take a break. So let's talk about some of your favorite stories from the book, because I mean, that's like fandom, you know, it's, it's the personal stories. It's the actual stories that draw us along, right? Because the reason stories resonate with us is because we get to live somebody else's life. We get to live an adventure. We get to get experience. Well, for me, and fandom gets to pull us along in someone else's experience and lets us share part of that and experience some of that. But this kind of work, leveraging someone's fandom, leveraging a storyline and using that then to create real experience with real value, real impact, you know, is one of those things where you're creating your own personal journey. You're you know, you're answering a call to action and a call to arms. You're answering that call to adventure. And so what was kind of one of your favorite stories from the book? And what was it about that that really was personally impactful for you? I don't know who wants that one first. I'll go. Um, I think one of my favorite stories is looking at um, the volunteers who stepped up after Hurricane Katrina, or not Hurricane Katrina, I'm sorry, uh, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Maria in the fall of 2017. So uh, the fall of 2017, there were some really horrifically um, devastating hurricanes. And Texas, it was at Houston, that was flooded. There was flooding all across the southern U.S. And um, people were trapped in their homes and they couldn't get um, their their phones weren't working. They couldn't get access to emergency services. And what I saw fans do was just nothing short of miraculous. I mean, really like what people did was they got together, they created, um, Slack channels. They got on Slack, which is a online, um, group messaging tool, I think. And they created channels and they, they took volunteer shifts and they were on Twitter and on social media 24 seven through shifts. They organized themselves looking for hashtags, SOS Harvey, SOS, you know, whatever. And so they scrubbed, they called it scrubbing. They scrubbed social media, looking for these hashtags. And then they would find the people, contact them. They'd be messaging them and they would help the, the uh, volunteer rescue force who were sometimes called the, the Cajun Navy, like people out in their boats and things. They would help connect those folks to the the rescuers and they they did this for weeks i mean just talk about the um you know the impressiveness of this action and then it was all volunteers 
and, and a good deal of them were, were fans. They weren't people who had professional training in this. And that was, that was challenging because some of them had really um, difficult emotional experiences and needed to pursue um, therapy and things like that. But I interviewed quite a few folks and they talked about, you know, how they were so humble, like with what they were doing, that really struck me. Like they just were like very dismissive of their actions. Well, I only did this. I'm like, you, you did so much. Like just, I can't do this. I can't be online at night. I work all day, you know. I can't go take a eight hour shift on Twitter after I've been at work all day. That's not something I have in my um, bandwidth. And so these folks did that and they were so humble. They wish they could do more. And um, they were, they had found and formed relationships with one another that I think continue to this day. So they, they created um, communities around this service work that was amazing. And they uh, ended up rescuing I have the numbers in the book, but thousands of people directly and hundreds of animals. And they also tracked the animals because the animals were important to them too, in terms of like saving people's pets or helping people get their pets rescued. So that was just um, gratifying and also just very humbling for me to, to hear folks, everyday people share those stories and realize that yeah, we focus a lot on big heroes, but it's the everyday heroes. It's the small H heroes who are really making a difference in the world. Yeah, one of one of my favorite stories that we came across was not actually from our interviews. It was something that we found along the way as we were writing the book. And it was from the true crime fandom. And the true crime fandom, especially lately, has been getting a lot of flack in the media for all sorts of things like romanticizing crime and interfering with investigations and things that certainly do happen but are not the majority of that fandom. And one of the really special things that we found in that fandom is a lot of folks coming together to focus on getting rid of the backlog of um, the forensic kits that are used when folks are sexually assaulted. If folks aren't aware, those kits sit sometimes for years without getting actually run through any kind of testing. And so a lot of money has been raised through the true crime fandom to make sure that those tests actually get through the process. And that's a lot of the kind of thing that you don't see get focused on in popular media about fans. When you hear about fandom and popular media, it's often this idea of like fans are fanatic. We're doing something obsessive and somehow um, untoward. And that's not really what we saw. Again, certainly those cases exist, but what we saw was just overwhelmingly people coming together to do good. So uh, let me ask kind of just one last thing here, because I mean, again, doing any book is a lot of work. I mean, you've got to really want to do it. I mean, it's a lot of work to to go through. Both of y'all do a lot of writing, writing academically. You spend a lot of time in this space. But to actually pull together something like this is a tremendous amount of work. What's the one thing that you really learned that surprised you out of the process of putting this together? Ooh, nobody's asked me that, I don't think. So I have to, I might need to process for a second. What did I learn? Um, that a lot of writing is put your butt in the chair 
and and make yourself do it, <laughs> which I know this from my dissertation work uh, where I would have to sit there and go, we're going to turn off. You can't look at any social media or any internet. If you, if you don't sit here for an hour, then you can, then you can look at internet. Um, I think the other thing that I learned was you're, if you're writing a book, you're never going to be totally satisfied with it. Like there's, I wish we could update. There's updates I'd like to make to it. Um, there's always things you think of that you wish could go in there or there's more to say on something um, or you you worry about having left something out that's important. But for me, that was a big part, like like letting go of the editing process or being being done <laughs> with my sections. It was hard to relinquish um, control over that or decision making after we had put so much time. I mean, we've we've been doing this for six, seven years at this point. Um, the actual writing doesn't take that long, but you know, we, we both have full-time day jobs and, and other things going on in our lives as, as humans do. Um, so that just took, uh, it, it is very time consuming. It's very much a labor of love, love. And we, um, we just wanted it to be well-received, celebratory and helpful. So kind of releasing it out into the world is sort of like letting you know, your child go ride on a bike for the first time without training wheels. <laughs> like, okay, good luck. See you around the block, you know, <laughs> or more, more apt these days for me is kid doing the driving for the first time, you know, without, without a parent or driving somewhere across town. <gasps> is it going to be okay? You know, <laughs> similarly, a lot of what I learned was the trust the process. Um, you know, writing academically is very different from what we we did putting together a book. The book is certainly longer for one thing than a lot of the other stuff that we write. Um, it's for a different audience. It uses different things. I think we had to both really focus on how it was okay to not have a citation for every single point that we made because that's something we're very used to in academic writing that we actually get to be the experts here. We don't have to cite everything. Um, the other thing, uh, because of that, because academic writing is also something that tends to, to not be read quite as much and uh, tends to be read by very particular people, it was a little scary, the idea that, oh, people are people are actually going to read my writing. This is not something that like five people who do their dissertation on this will read. This is something that actually a lot of people will read. And so also trusting that process and that what we had put together was something that would be celebratory and well-received. So in that light, what is the, what's the thing you hope that anybody that picks this book up is going to take away from it? I mean, What's what's the big thing for you uh, that if one person picks this book up and gets something out of it, what's that win for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope that whoever reads this knows that they are making a difference. They can make a difference and they can have a good time and while doing it and it can be sustainable and they can learn more about themselves and grow as an individual through this service that they want to do so they can be a hero without being too uh, cliche, they really can in the best way and not in the Batman getting the ki crack, crap kicked out of you constantly way, okay? In a sustainable way. <laughs> well, and you know, to that point, we also wrote this book for folks who have 
been doing this for a really long time and folks who are brand new to this work. And so my hope for folks who are brand new to this work is that they pick this up and feel inspired to start the work or to keep going with the work. And for folks who maybe have been engaged in fan activism for a long time, my hope is that they will feel more sustained in that work. Well, I really appreciate y'all joining me this evening and it's been a fun conversation for me. Hopefully it has been for you as well. Um, but let's let everybody know what the book is again and where yes. they can find it. Thank you. It was great. Really appreciate it. Um, our book is called Fandom Acts of Kindness, A Heroic Guide to Activism, Advocacy, and Doing Chaotic Good. It's a bit of a reference to to the D&D folks out there. Um, and you can find it pretty much wherever books are sold online. Um, you may or may not find hard copies in your local bookstore, but it is definitely widely available through barnesandnoble.com, Amazon, uh, Bookshop, and and all of the above. And, you know, if you would like to politely harass your bookstore or um, your library to have it, we would love that. We'd love to have it in libraries. And I'll speak for myself, but I'm also happy to, if if you want to have a book club, I'm happy to join y'all for a Zoom uh, or answer any questions for folks if they if they do a book club or want to um, have some kind of webinar about it. Yeah, same. So where can they find you guys to stalk, you know, to stalk the professors? Oh, yeah. Um, you can find me in the club with my bottle full of bub. No, I'm just kidding. I'm quite... <laughs> it's a 50 cent. Um, not really. Um, you can find us on Twitter mostly at AK nerd fighting and that's capital A K and then N and F for nerd fighting. Cause we were very interested in the, in the supernatural fandom and the nerd fighteria fandom when we first got into this. So AK nerd fighting, always keep nerd fighting is our, all our Facebook, um, page and then AK nerd fighting on Twitter, I think is the main place you want to try to reach out to us. Well, I very much appreciate y'all spending the evening with me and um, hopefully we'll be seeing you guys again soon. So when does the sequel come out? That's the important question. <laughs> hey, I love that. I love that because I sort of have an answer. Um, I don't know about when, but it, it's happening. Um, it's happening. Um, kind of. We are currently working on an edited volume about uh, the HBO Max series, Our Flag Means Death. And trying to come to a convention near you, um, <laughs> mostly that's West Coast, uh, San Diego Comic-Con in Denver, where I am. Um, but if you have a, an event that you'd like to kind of tell us about, we, we love to go to these as much as we can. But the edited volume about Our Flag Means Death will be about uh, fan creativity, found family, and all the ways that fans are finding fandom joy again relative to that show. So that's, that's our next um, major project. Oh, we have a chapter coming out about the boys, too. I don't know if you want to say more about that, Kayla. <laughs> yeah, so we have a chapter coming out about the boys in a book by Lynn Zuberness. And that, uh, I forget what the working title of that one is. Um, but the the chapter is going to be about how the gender swap of um, Stormfront's character has some interesting things to say about feminism in our society today. That was a fun one. And if you like Billy, really if you like Billy Joel's song titles as much as we, we Huey, you're going to like what Tanya post struggling with COVID did to, 
and my contribution to the chapter was looking up a lot of Billy Joel song titles and making them work, <laughs> among other things. But Well, I appreciate y'all coming in and joining me tonight, and we'll see you guys again soon. For everybody else out there, now you know how to put all of that creative energy to good work, and we'll see you again soon.